Hello everyone, I'm Alan Mellis, Director of Events and Online Content at the Human Capital Institute, and this is Nine to Thrive HR, your source for education, expertise, and knowledge on all things talent. If you just can't get enough of this kind of thing, be sure to check us out at hci.org for more amazing free content like this. And also, if you want to make a real investment in your personal development this year, learn about our highly interactive virtual conference schedule at hci.org forward slash conferences. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Catalytic. You can learn more about them at catalytic.com. And my guest today is Sean Chow, CEO and co-founder of Catalytic. Sean, welcome to Nine to Thrive. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. So diving right in, we're here to talk about technology and upskilling and all of these different things. So let's start off. It's always helpful, I think, to define a few things. What do we mean by upskilling and why is it so relevant right now for HR professionals and also everybody in the workplace? So I think upskilling, when I think about the term, when Catalytic thinks about the term upskilling, we're really focused on taking business users and giving them additional skills. And in the context of Catalytic, we're really talking about taking business users and giving them skills to be able to start creating some software solutions that traditionally you would have developers do. So the broad definition for upskilling is really just improving someone's skills, but we're really focused on the set of technical skills necessary for building out solutions. Right. And that's an interesting frontier here because it's, you know, somebody might be an accountant or any number of professions and they're, instead of just telling software developers what they need, we're actually now talking about getting them much more intimately involved in the creative process. So I guess, how does that work? Are they learning to code? Are they, what are they doing there? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, if you take a step back and think about the problem that we're solving, it's it's really coming at it from both the supply and demand side. From a supply side, the fundamental problem is that there's way more demand for software solutions and for software to be built than there are developers. Um, and so that's kind of one angle to come at it. But at the same time, from the upskilling perspective, you also have a lot of people who are really interested with doing something in addition to whatever it is they're doing, or they're already dabbling a lot in technology and they've already kind of become these ad hoc citizen developers. So you just want to give them better tools to be able to continue doing what they kind of naturally want to do in any case. So if you think about why that's important in today's context, a lot of it is coming down to the trend toward automation um, and the interest in automation has got a lot of knowledge workers really thinking about how they can continue to add value to their employers, how they can continue to add value to their own resume. And a lot of it is taking their domain expertise and learning how to directly apply that domain expertise to something you just mentioned, which is, you know, why translate that to a software developer if they're able to solve some of the problems directly? Absolutely. And we put on a lot of recruiting focused conferences and events and everything. And you're absolutely right that the demand for new software is certainly outstripping the supply for software developers and has been for, oh, I don't know, 30 years or so, it seems like. So this problem is by no means new, but it sounds like there's some changes or new developments in the technology that are making it easier for professionals to add these skills to their existing arsenal and then deploy them as a way of uh, developing the kind of software tools that they and the people they work with want to use. 
Yeah, I think there's two interesting trends that dovetail really nicely. One is something that catalytic we have nothing to do with, which is just that the average worker's technical aptitude is much, much higher today than it was, let's say, 10 or definitely 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, I remember, you know, you would have to help people understand how to use their mouse. Uh, and you are answering some very remedial desktop questions. But today, the average worker is coming in. They're very sophisticated. They're very savvy in their day-to-day life. They use a lot of technology. They're really comfortable with websites. A lot of them are dabbling with advanced topics already in their own personal technology. So they might be using Siri shortcuts. They might have created some home automation. So just a general level of technical capabilities across the workforce has increased tremendously over the past two decades. Now that dovetails perfectly to a trend that we do in fact control and are pushing for at Catalytic, which is platforms that actually come at this from the other perspective. You know, if one is skills are increasing, the other, the, the catalytic add value add is how do we actually make platforms so that they're ever easier? And, you know, here I think about things like um, if you think about mainframes and the evolution that they went through from just a very small group of people who would be willing to work with punch cards and mainframes to then their first foray into making it more accessible would be something like, well, you know, no one wants to use punch cards in assembly. So how about if we create COBOL and Fortran? And that like moved the needle a little bit, right? There were certainly a lot more people who were willing to use that and learn that than there were willing to learn much harder technology, but it still didn't really break it open wide. What really made it widely available was Lotus. And so I feel like we're at that stage today in the, in the world of no code. We've had a lot of forays into no code. And we've talked a lot about the idea of citizen developers. There's certainly a lot of applications out there that try to lower the bar to become a builder or to become a software engineer. But I would say most of those have been closer to Fortran and COBOL. But now you're really starting to see the equivalent of Lotus show up in the no code world. Yeah. And just to back up for those who are not initiated, what is low code? What is no code platforms or solutions? That's a great question. And and people tend to use them interchangeably. A lot of people just kind of smash them up. Uh, and I do, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say no code, low code, but we do actually think of them as slightly different and different people have different definitions for it. The definition that I typically use is no code is really targeted toward people who are comfortable with Excel spreadsheets, but not scripting. Um, and so it's really designed to enable this citizen developer class of uh, business users. Um, low code, on the other hand, is really targeted toward people who are more comfortable with scripting. They may not be professional developers, but they're more comfortable getting into scripting. And they might have worked on some programming in Salesforce. So they might be Salesforce admins, maybe they use HubSpot, um, or, you know, maybe they've done a lot of scripting uh, at the command shell level. So maybe some IT administrators. So that's one definition of low code. The other definition of low code that we don't really use that much at Catalytic, but I know it's definitely out there, are platforms that are designed to help developers get more leverage. Uh, and so sometimes when you're talking about low code, it's not really oriented toward or targeted towards citizen developers, but it's really targeted toward making developers more productive. There's a little nuance there that 
you know, sometimes is hard to distinguish. I see. Yeah. So um, sort of like, this is not the same thing at all, but uh, sort of like how you hear people use AI and machine learning almost interchangeably when there is some distinctions or gradations in between those two things. Um, so I do want to ask, though, what role um, should or could low-code, no-code tools play in an organization's upskilling program? Um, how can that work for us? I really see these two trends as very, very tied together. And again, it depends on what you're talking about when you're talking about upskilling, because some people are talking about upskilling into other functions. You know, For example, maybe they're talking about taking people who are in customer success and upskilling them into a more financial analyst position. And, and that's not really the set of things that Catalytic is generally focused on. But if we're talking about where we see most upskilling initiatives, it's really how do we tech enable our current business users? How do we actually upskill them into people who are able to create digital solutions? So the ways in which most upskilling initiatives and a no-code platform dovetail is if you think about the purpose of upskilling, it is to basically bridge a gap, right? You're trying to increase skills of someone and kind of put them into a different type of role. So the upskilling initiative is to give more skills. The no-code platform is to make it so that you don't need to have the same level of skills to be able to perform the same function. So if I'm trying to take uh, someone, again, we'll, I'll just keep using customer success as an example since I threw it out there. If I'm trying to take someone from customer success and I want to build them into a Java programmer, well, that gap is actually a much bigger leap than if I want to take someone who's in customer success and turn them into someone who can create solutions on a no-code platform. Right. And, and that's where these two technology or these two initiatives really marry up. I think when a company thinks about an upskilling initiative, they really have to think about what is that destination? What is it that I actually want my upskilled resources to do? And then also put on that employee hat and say, what is my upskilled resource going to be able to do out there in the marketplace? You know, I think that's one of the things that's happening a lot here during the pandemic. And it's also it happened before the pandemic where people were just being very aware of employee desires and thinking about employee career progression uh, and, and trying to you know be essentially an advocate for the employee's career with the intent that if I'm a good advocate for the employee career, they're going to stay at my organization. Um, and so if you think about giving employees different skills, they can get to a no-code state much faster. They can get productive and they have output to show much faster than if they're going to go through the slag to become a Java developer, which is a much, much longer journey and much harder. Yeah. And so that kind of leads me to my next question is um, for HR's world in particular, what are some good examples of use cases for workflows and automation within HR? Oh, I mean, man, within HR, if you think about HR, it's, it's an interesting function because uh, on one hand, it's anchored in, in almost every HR organization. It's anchored by some sort of HR IS system, whether it's an old PeopleSoft implementation, Workday, SAP, you know, whatever the case, there's almost always some sort of HR IS system. And as much as possible, people want to do everything inside of that system. And I think that's largely the right answer. You know, you've made a huge investment in this huge ERP implementation and you want to leverage it. 
But in almost every HR organization I've seen, that's never the case. It's always one big HRIS system and then a hundred point solutions, right? And and a hundred custom apps. And when you break down a lot of the custom apps and when you break down a lot of the point solutions, a lot of them do have a very simple pattern or series of patterns. And the patterns are oftentimes something like a workflow enabled form. So, you know, a form where someone submits information, let's say a vacation request, and then a set of activities that have to take place after that. Uh, maybe it's just people authorizing approvals. Maybe it rolls into a report. Maybe it requires some paperwork to be filled out, templates to be you know, populated. But there's typically a lot of these activities that are sparked by a form. And if you just think about that basic pattern, it exists so much within HR. Um, and that's the exact kind of thing that a no-coder can tackle very, very quickly on a platform such as Catalytic. Yeah, the uh, HR being one of those functions where there is probably in all organizations, it might be in different spots of HR, but there's always going to be some low-hanging fruit that's ready to be automated by a more entrepreneurial-minded uh, HR employee. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just like riffing on that pattern, you could get into things that are very structured and formal, like a vacation request. You can get into quick employee performance reviews. You can do, you know, things like perks that people have or electing people. I mean, the numbers of point solutions and examples that do this are really countless. And again, people, uh, organizations invest a lot of time and energy into creating what I think of as a lot of custom apps, uh, and they tie up a lot of IT resources for these that they, they really don't need to, you know, because there are things that you are really a poor fit for citizen developers to do that you do truly need professional developers to do. So a lot of this is about like allocating work better and being able to think about the things where if I'm a software developer and I need to spend most of my time trying to learn about what the business is doing, then odds are that's the exact kind of work that is actually better off if I give the business a no-code platform and allow them to actually build and I can just be a governance function versus if I'm spending my time building something where it's more strategic and it's really, you know, I, I have to engage with the business obviously, but I'm not just sitting here acting as a mapping function for business telling me what I need to build. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it sort of falls into the, um, the paradigm of when there's a lower resolution solution needed, you know, it doesn't need somebody who spent years, you know, developing their skills in, in Java or one of these other languages when it could be done by somebody who's just augmented their existing skill set and then they use their knowledge as an HR person or a finance person to put something together that is um, that gets the job done. Yeah. And, and HR, as a result, is... Uh, I mean, we just spent some time talking about problems that are in HR that could be solved through a no-code platform and, you know, problems that lend themselves to automation. But if you think about HR as a function, you know, they're really at an interesting time in technology and I guess the business world in general. Uh, and if I think about the last big change, the last big structural change that is similar to this, it's when companies really started to bring in contingent labor, right? Or gig economy. 
And I, I happen to know that really well because, you know, I, I helped start Field Glass and I was a CTO there. So that's, that's an old trend that I definitely got to witness firsthand. And that was transformational because HR for the first time can be really thoughtful and strategic about a brand new set of capabilities in the form of contingent labor that previously was very informal and, you know, was just kind of like, hey, how do we get a staffing company to help fill uh, admin clerical roles? But that really morphed into something that became and still is very strategic. So companies can take uh, an HR, can act as a very strategic thoughtful part of the workforce composition. And so now you're in that same sort of situation where a lot of companies have downsized. They want to make sure that they retain the talent that they do have, but then as they kind of grow again, they want to be very thoughtful about the workforce composition. And so now you have the ability to think about your employees and the value proposition you have to give to your employees. You have contingent labor still as a strategic resource that you can use, but now you also have automation, right? And that's kind of new to the table uh, because automation has always been a feature within most B2B software, but now you really see automation as a platform. You see it as a genuine ability to think about and rethink the way work could be and should be done. And so HR is again, in like a really interesting position in terms of how they think about using technologies and automation to appeal to their current employees uh, in the form of tech enabling them, upskilling them, uh, to appeal to new hires, and then to also do some of the work that they don't think someone would be happy doing. Absolutely. Well, I can't think of a better spot to end as we're coming to the end of our time here today. So I want to thank you, Sean, for a really stimulating discussion on some of the new frontiers in technology and the workspace. So uh, thank you for that. And also a big thank you to Catalytic for making it all possible today. And for all ideas related to HR, come visit the Human Capital Institute at hci.org. Don't forget to like us, rate us, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Smart Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Alan Mellish.